we cut through a fence with bolt cutters, went through it with all our equipment and our pink beanies and these jumpers that said mass deportation, mass deportations kill and no one is illegal. And then four people go to the nose wheel of the plane and lock on. And then the rest of us go between the wing and um, the kind of rear staircase of the plane. And this was during a point in time where coaches had already arrived in flight. And I think like uh, people are being like processed somehow. I'm not quite sure what happens. I Mm. guess their documents are being checked or like they're just being prepared for the flight. Um, And so on board the plane, there's only the pilot, Mm -hmm. some of the staff and the security. Um, And so were you able to get like locked on quite quickly before you were noticed or how? Most of us, um, the person who you see in the, in the video that's like running, didn't manage to get uh, to lock on. And so he was arrested first. Um, and because we didn't have, we had two tripods and only one of them was used. So I was on top of the tripod that was used. Um, and so, yeah, we didn't, you know, manage to like do everything we wanted. Um, because here's the thing, because there's been protests there in the past, Mm. there's actually like a special patrol unit that's deployed to, uh, drive around the perimeter. Um, and this is this was kind of an issue in our trial because the prosecution would allude to us as being like these unknown swarm of people, wow. and it was like you knew who we were, you knew we were protesters <laughs> because you were you you prepared for that. Yeah, you pre- you're yeah. preparing for protesters because they knew it was a sensitive. Yeah, that's flight, very revealing. And that's what they'd say mm. it was. Salam's peace and hello. You're listening to another episode of Breaking Binaries. I'm your host, Sahima Manzal Khan. I go by The Brown Hijabi online, and I'm a writer, spoken word poet, and educator. As a society, we're obsessed with explaining our world through the use of straightforward opposing categories. So good or bad, moderate or radical, pretty or ugly, victim or villain, the list goes on. All these sets of binaries that we use to explain our world tend to be quite superficial and hide the real complexities, politics and nuances of how we've been encouraged to think. So every episode, I'll be sitting down with a different friend to break a binary and see how doing so helps us think more critically and widely about ourselves, our world and therefore how to transform it. This episode, I'm joined by my friend Helen Brewer. She's an artist and activist who was part of the direct action to stop a deportation flight from Stansted Airport two years ago. You might know of her and her friends now as the Stansted 15. We had an amazing conversation around her experiences and work, and I really hope you enjoy listening. Okay, so this episode, I'm joined by my friend Helen Brewer, and we're going to be breaking down the binary of illegal immigrants and legal immigrants. So Helen, we met in the summer, um, there was like a Galdem kind of day where we, we were kind of chatting about things. And that was when I found out that you had been part of a direct action. Uh, do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, sure. So... And about yourself. Feel free to introduce yourself. Um, yeah, so... The direct action happened on the 28th of March, 2017, and 
That was when 15 of us broke into Stansted Airport to stop a chartered deportation flight to Nigeria and Ghana. Um, so this plane was carrying people with ongoing asylum claims, people who were being violently removed from their communities. A lot of them um, came from detention centers across the country. Others were snatched from their homes in the middle of the night. Um, and in particular, we knew of people through Detained Voices, which is a collective that takes testimonies from people inside detention. These are stories of their living conditions, stories of their legal case. And we knew of uh, people, one person in particular, who was a woman who feared that her ex-husband would kill her upon arrival in Nigeria. And this was one of many. Another person we knew about had fled Nigeria due to conflict over the land. His family were killed. He had no one. And he had fled to the UK seeking asylum. So... After reading these testimonies and from, I guess, amongst us, we all had very different histories and relationships to people who had kind of experienced the full force of Britain's border regime. Uh, myself in particular, I, you know, I, I grew up in Australia for most of my childhood and it was there that I was, I, I began protesting as out, outside detention centers in the, in the middle of nowhere, you know, in the outback. And it was a, it was a very different, different experience of what it meant to be a migrant justice activist in that space. So, so is that a similar thing in the sense that the people who were detained, why were they detained there? Was it the same reason? Um, yeah, well, um, I think uh, most people, everyone is detained because they're seen to have no, as the UK says, no right to remain in the country right. um, and therefore, in quotations, illegal. So, yeah, and 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 previous to that flight that occurred on the 28th of March that we stopped, we had known about another flight that left at the end of January. This went to Nigeria and Ghana as well. And um, and so through kind of like months of research, we started to understand the schedule of these flights, mm -hmm. as well as groups who have been um, following these flights had compiled um, kind of like a list of and and of where the flights went from um, to where at what time, um, and so this data was really kind of valuable and necessary in terms of understanding the process of how these deportations occur. And how just like for those of us who don't know, like how frequent are these flights, and like how how often were they happening? And um, so. It's changed a lot since the action, okay. um, which I, I can talk more about mm -hmm. later. But at the time, the flight to Nigeria and Ghana was leaving every two months. And, and how many people would be like on a flight like that every two months? Um, so with this plane, it, it was 60 people. So 60 people. And these are 60 people who have been it's been decided that they can't they have as you say no right to remain in this country. And in the wider mainstream media, they would be referred to as illegal. Um, and so they're being sent back to the conditions that you just described, right? Yeah. So, I mean, like in, in terms of 
In terms of the this woman who identified as a lesbian and whose husband threatened to kill her, if she were to go back to Nigeria, she would have either received 14 years in prison wow. or depending on which state she was from, she would have been she could have been killed by like kind of mob action or mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um Corrective rape is common practice as well that they use there. So, and does that have any bearing on? I mean, I don't know how much you know about this, but what, but like, how how much bearing does that have on the cases of these people? Like, that sounds to me like a pretty convincing reason to not have to go back somewhere where you were unsafe and you're going to be likely yeah. be killed. Does and why do these people end up on flights? Like, what's the in terms of yeah, like a lot of people have incredibly convincing stories as to why they should be allowed to stay in the country. But the Home Office and the state, as we know, doesn't necessarily take those into account. And their their whole practice is about meeting targets. And these deportation flights in particular, and, and this is how they differ from commercial deportations that occur on, like, say, British Airways, for example, is that they have... They have to fill the seats up on the plane because mm-hmm. they've scheduled these planes in advance. And so in that sense, people are rounded up, mostly based on their perceived nationality, because on this one flight, we knew of someone who was actually from Sierra Leone oh, wow. and he was deported on the same flight. And there have been other instances of people from other parts of Africa who are removed on these flights and told to make their way back to their own country. And, and so you can see that this isn't really about people's individual cases at all but it's about meeting targets and people aren't seen as human beings they're seen as cargo right that's super interesting because i think even the phrase illegal immigrant does uh, automatically i think it makes you we don't think of those people as human right they're just immigrant already is this category of people that we kind of think of as somewhat less human than the rest of us and whoever else becomes in that case and then illegal i mean that's just like you're you know what even are you in that in that case and so in that context then what um I mean, what's maybe you could tell us a bit about the action that you actually took um, before we kind of get delve too much into the, the the binary itself. And people will, I guess, have probably heard recently about the Stansted 15, which is, I guess, what you're now <laughs> known <laughs> known by. Um, so yeah, what is it that you did, and what's been the repercussions? Yeah. So um, yeah, we've been called the Stansted 15, which I think comes from like a long line of history within activism and activist trials where they just kind of like have a number yeah. and say like, oh, it happened in this area. So yeah, uh, anyway, on this night, after um, learning about people who were on board, the, on board the flight, as well as taking part in, so I was I guess my role in this, in the lead up to the action, was understanding that process. Um, and that meant going to Stansted Airport mm-hmm. to follow flights to see when would be the best time to intervene. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the flights that we were watching was actually a flight to Pakistan that left a week beforehand. That was a deportation flight? That was a deportation okay. flight. And, and that was to understand 
which plane it was, mm. where it was parked, um, how long it took from for the coaches to arrive, to how long that processing took place wow. before detainees were. So were put- you just figuring this out by observation? It was from observation, but also from like the kind of years worth of research right, of and course. data that yeah, other yeah, groups yeah. had done. But because I knew that I was going to be taking part in this, mm. I need like a few of us needed to be there yeah. to understand the lay of the land yeah, and be like, all right, is this going to be safe or isn't it? Um, so were you just kind of like hanging out at the airport? Like- we were... Yeah, we were um, <laughs> We were in a car, like wow. in a car park. So where it took place as well, I just want to add, mm. wasn't like at the main terminal at Stansted right. or anything. And, and is that deliberate? That sounds quite deliberate. It was. It's very deliberate. <laughs> it's very deliberate that these planes um, have like leave in the middle of the night. This flight to Pakistan that we watched left at three in the morning. So it, it occurs from a very remote part of the airport near, um, kind of ironically, near where like Harrods has a terminal oh, wow. and near where there's this other terminal called in-flight jet center. And so normally you have mostly really rich people taking their private <sighs> jets. And I think there was a plane there who, who like an Emirati an Emirati's plane that was for his horses. Oh my That's where it's God. like parked. So you have like this really funny, oh, weird yeah. area at the airport that is mostly reserved for like private jets. Mm-hmm. And then you have these deportation flights that are happening. And will those people who are going to be deported, do they still? I don't. Do they still go through the airport in the same kind of way? Like, do they? They go through. Yeah, they go through the in-flight jet center terminal, which right. is like a private terminal. Right, okay. And if you've ever seen a, a picture of it, it's like very luxurious. Okay. Weird. So it's just. I I couldn't imagine kind of That's really bizarre, that experience. Yeah. Um, but then again, it kind of makes sense because the reason why there's been campaigns against like, you know, LGSM, for example, lesbian and gay support the migrants um, recently helped win a campaign against Virgin, which was like a very public uh, campaign against this commercial airline. That was that was helped by like the public and public the public standing up. But Titan, because their clients are the super rich and they don't really there's their contract with the home office isn't exactly going to impede on their other clients Mm, in any way it's like it's a kind of separate yeah um okay yeah so you're doing this observation you were taking the lay of the land and then you decided to and then we um found out when the tickets were being given to to people inside detention um because we had contacts with detained voices and these were the people who had relationships with people inside and were kind of relaying information to us um yes we knew that um people at detained voices uh, had this relationship with people and they would be given uh, a ticket five days before their flight would leave. They wouldn't say what time it was or anything like that. So we kind of had like a window of timings that we thought would be uh, the correct one, I guess. Um, and upon knowing those tickets were given, we the day of we went to the this is now 
I have to say, it's like this now infamous, infamous field in Oxfordshire. I say that because during the trial, the prosecution were like, where was this field? Where was this training camp? And oh it's my God, like, training it, camp. Wow. Yeah, they were, it was, it was very inflammatory That's the very way they were referring to it. It mm. was like, it was like literally just a farm in Oxfordshire, a friend's farm. Mm. Um, and this is where we kind of brought our equipment these so what kind of equipment did you need so lock-on tubes which are like very uh common for activists to use you know you insert your arm into a steel metal tube and like have this you have this little chain around your wrist and you kind of lock on with a carry carabiner what how do you say (laughs) carabiner carabiner and we had two tripods we kind of had uh, Mel, our co-defendant, sourced these like bright pink beanie hats. And there's actually a video us. of this that people oh, can yeah. see online, right? Like yeah. I've, I've seen. Who was filming that? So <laughs> we there were two journalists who okay. we kind of invited to kind of yeah take photos mm-hmm. and like witness. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, that was a that was a a person, um, Casper, who. Yeah, he filmed that. Okay, cool. Which is like pretty ballsy. So yeah, right. Well done, Casper. And you can see people like running, and there's someone yeah. like, and you know, the the I guess who like the security or something. Security, are, like, yeah. yeah, turn up like seven minutes. I mean, they were like because quick. so you're like on the runway, right? So no, 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 no. Where are you? No, we were never on the runway. Oh, okay, sorry. Um, <laughs> we were. So <laughs> you can tell I was our there. trial is over, but it's still still like. Okay, so that's the point, right? Um. Yeah, we were on the apron, which the apron is pretty much just like a parking bay for the plane. Um, But yeah, like the we cut through a fence with bolt cutters, went through it with all our equipment and our pink beanies and these jumpers that said mass deportations kill and no one is illegal. And then four people go to the nose wheel of the plane and lock on. And then the rest of us go between the wing and um, the kind of rear staircase of the plane. And this was during a point in time where coaches had already arrived in flight. And I think like... Uh, people are being like processed somehow. I'm not quite sure what happens. I mm. guess their documents are being checked or okay. like they're just being prepared for the flight. Um, and so on board the plane, there's only the pilot, okay. some of the staff and the security. Um, and So were you able to get like locked on quite quickly before you were noticed or how? Most of us, um, the person who you see in the in the video that's like running didn't manage to get uh, right. to lock on and so he was arrested first and because we didn't have we had two tripods and only one of them were, was used oh. so i was on top of the tripod that was used oh. um and so yeah we didn't you know manage to like do everything we wanted okay um because yeah secure well Here's the thing, because there's been protests there in the past, mm. there's actually like a special patrol unit oh, that's really? deployed to wow. uh, drive that's around so the insidious. perimeter. And this is this was kind of an issue in our trial because the prosecution would allude to us as being like these unknown swarm of people. Wow. And it was like, you knew who we were. You knew we were protesters <laughs> because... You were you. You prepared for that. Yeah, you pre- you yeah. were preparing for protesters because they knew it was a sensitive. Yeah, that's flight, very revealing. And that's what they'd say mm. it was. And so here's the key question: Did you stop the flight? 
Yes, we've, we stopped the flight that evening. Um, we were there for 10 hours, but the flight was charted two days later with, uh, I think, nearly around half the people on board. So 23 people or okay. so. Um, and the only reason why only half was because they couldn't get a big enough plane. Wow. But in that window of time mm-hmm. and... I guess, you know, in a lot of the media that's come out or whatever, they always kind of refer to us as like saving people's lives or we save people's lives who are in this plane. And I just wanted to kind of clarify that that's not what we did. Like what we did was provide an opportunity for people to contact their solicitors to get injunctions to get off that plane. And that's all we did. And that's all we can't, in a way, that's all we could do Mm. is like provide the opportunity Mm -hmm. because- Like time. Yeah, because most of the resistance occurs inside. Most of the resistance is done by the people experiencing the immigration border regime Mm -hmm. and and how we act in solidarity Mm -hmm. is to kind of try and like, Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, so here's the interesting thing is that you, as you're saying, and, and from what you've said, I, I feel like that that was a morally seems like a good thing to have done, to have provided the opportunity for people to not be going to places that you described. But I remember watching, um, so I think it was after you guys were convicted that you were on the Victoria Derbyshire program. And um, I think that's when it was. But anyway, I just remember people calling in saying, well, you know, you what you have done. So actually, here's a question. So what was the law that you had? So Because people were saying that what you had done was against the law, right? And secondly, that you had been trying to help people who in of themselves anyway were quote unquote illegal. And so it all became about this question of like your lega- the legality of your actions, the legality of those people's existences. And if both those things were illegal, then they were wrong. And this was really interesting to me because it seemed on paper that surely morally this is just seems right. But then when it came to the question of legality, people were like, well, no, you should, you should be charged for what you did because what you did was wrong because it's illegal. And it's this conflation of like law and what is wrong and right and what is kind of humane and not humane. Um, and so, yeah, tell us a bit about what you were charged with and why that, why what you did was seen as so bad. So initially we were charged with aggravated trespass and criminal damage, which is pretty much your run-of-the-mill charge <laughs> for breaking and entering. Um, and that's been, that was, so we obviously knew we were going to be arrested if, okay. if we took part in this action. Um, and we were prepared for that. And and I think that... And did you assume that was the kind of law that you would be arrested yeah, under? We, yeah, we thought that would be it because we had people in our group who had broken to airports before. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is kind of, and I, and I just... This is one of the reasons why I feel like the outcome or like how we as a group kind of stuck together throughout this and managed to, you know, gain the traction we wanted in platform is because we prepared a lot yeah, for like, sounds like it. what what we would what we might face and we had contacts with like an amazing solicitor we had contacts with people who would be working to help us mm-hmm. with this because one of the things we're interested in is legal litigation against the home office okay. and trying to create case law uh, against De- these deportation flights. So could you just say in more accessible words, what is legal litigation against the so We're using a defense. Um, it's sometimes called the necessity defense um, or the justification defense to say that we needed to stop this flight and we needed to act in order to pre- prevent greater injury, harm or death mm-hmm. from occurring. And 
in a sense, if we had won on that precedent, then deportation charter flights in general would then be um, seen as a harmful yeah. thing. And 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 we would we had kind of prepared for we had like okay. expert evidence around okay, wow. deportation charter flights, and we had testimonies from people who were on board that flight. Okay. So we kind of had prepared. Mm-hmm against this and and the home office were present during our trial right the whole time so but hang on so just pausing for a second but the trial was not for the law that you said you were initially charged for right no no so um yeah sorry (laughs) uh yeah we were charged with aggravated trespass and criminal damage six months later we received a letter from the attorney general saying that they had changed the charge and now that now we're being charged with now we're being charged under the Aviation and Maritime Security Act 1990 which is a terrorist related offense. So they were um, saying that what you had done fell under a terrorist offense which yeah. is the the whole thing you just described about locking yourself onto the yeah. plane to stop a deportation flight. Okay, again interesting, yeah. right? In terms of what's legal, what's not, what's good, what's bad. Yeah. So that was that that charge is endangerment of safety at the at, at an aerodrome. So whose safety was endangered? Uh that's a good question. <laughs> that's uh that's up for that's still <laughs> being argued actually. <laughs> right. Um but that came in through the locker B bombing. Right. Um and this is the first time I mean this is where why there was such a public outcry and and a, and a reason why if we went to magistrates I think you know this would have been forgotten and, and no one you know we just probably got in, been found guilty some people yeah. would have been so in a way this charge months. actually gave gave it the platform yeah I think I think that was like a had. big mistake on, on the mm. state's part by by doing this because and why do you think they did do that do you think it was a deterrent to be like this is what you go through if oh you... yeah <laughs> of course I mean I've never been through I've never been to court before, mm. before this. This is the first direct action I've ever taken. Okay. Um, and so remind us the date of the direct action. March 28, 2017. Okay, so this is like a whole two years later. Yeah, and this process has been going on for two exactly. years. Exactly. So like, this is, this is what, you know, it's funny because... The maximum sentence for this charge for for um, endangerment is life in prison. Wow! And la no two weeks ago we had our sentencing. We were found guilty. Surprise! Um, and the guilty of that terrorist act charge, yes. right? And our sentence was ranging from a hundred hours community service to two hundred and fifty hours community service. Three people had suspended sentences, but like. Why would you charge us if you weren't going to send us to prison for like very intriguing? A, you know, at least you know. Yeah, five so what do you years think? What, what do you think happened there? Like, why did? Because it seemed for a while that it was a very real possibility that you guys could get prison time. That or did, did that not seem true? Or like what? That was. I mean, that was. That's what we thought. I right. mean, that that's why it was such a hugely stressful. Mm-hmm experience yeah. for us because we had no idea and our lawyers had no idea right. the, our lawyers were like we've never encountered this before we don't know how to it's deal insane. with it we don't know what's going to happen so even if we ask our barristers who have like mm. who work in you know human rights and who have um defended mm. people charged with terrorist legislation before mm. are like yeah we can't really predict what's going so to happen so it was happen. kind of like an exceptional case then it was like this yeah. is and also it was hilarious to me is that uh, can you imagine under 
any other circumstances, somebody convicted and charged under terrorism acts doing community service. Like, hilarious. I'm like, this is, is that, what was the, what's the message? Like, what was the kind of deterrent they were trying to send out? Like, what's the, and obviously you guys went through like a long and public I mean, because almost, I, I think when I was watching, what was interesting about when I was watching the Victoria, Victoria Derbyshire program was that it became this media trial by public as well, right? That was like whether what you had done was, uh, it was like people were confused about whether something could be right, even if it was illegal. Um, and I guess maybe that can bring us to the to the binary itself of illegal and legal, right? And in and particularly in the case of the people on this flight. And, and as you've said before, they were deemed illegal immigrants. And I mean, what does that mean? What does that actually mean? That who are these people? As you said, that a lot of them are fleeing from store, from experiences of violence or they're making sure that they don't go back into experiences of violence. And when we say they're illegal in this country, do we just mean that they don't have um, citizenship here? Do we mean they don't have certain documents? Like what, could you give us an idea of the scope of what illegal, what it means to be illegal? Well, yeah, I'll try. I mean, <laughs> I guess like the, if you ask the home office, if um, like why people are being deported or, you know, if you if you try to call them up and say that, look, this charter flight's happening, I'm, I'm worried about the people on this plane, they'll say that, they don't have a right to be here. Right. They have no right to remain. Okay. Um, and therefore, we're going to remove them. And so I think like the concept of illegality is so arbitrary right. in nature that considering considering there are people on that plane who were going to be removed, but after our action, two of them have now receive leave to remain just goes to show Mm. that so they were illegal and then now they're not legal but only because they had a chance to appeal have their appeal heard and 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 just for um some info Mm. most people only when they're uh, leave to remain on appeal so it's like i I don't know the the percentage at all but it's like super low that people ever win the first time round. Um, so if so, you're seeking asylum, the first time round, it's actually really highly likely that you won't be granted asylum. Yeah. And then you have to appeal the case. And this process usually takes years, right? Yeah. Like this is over yeah. a long, long period of time in people's lives. Takes years. And, and during this, you know, you've got to sign in to mm-hmm. a reporting centre. You've got fear hanging over you that you might be taken into detention that you know your house might be raided mm-hmm. that you might not see your kids again and so and, and this is like the and hostile you environment uh, right right i was gonna say and, and part of the hostile environment includes because uh, as far as i understand it, it's you know you can't you can't work you can't get a job because you're not you don't have a legal status you can't um in terms of renting and housing and all yeah. these kinds of things accessing services you, you this this, as you've said, kind of arbitrary category, because in a few years' time, it may be t- deemed that actually you are you are legal, you have the right to remain. This arbitrary category, um, I guess, seems to, to me more than anything to to mark out how how much of a right to being human you have. And and what's interesting to me is that it, it, uh, what you're saying is that it's not just deportation that is kind of the the thing that happens to people who are seen as not having rights to remain being illegal but this category of illegality and illegal existence also means that you can end up in detention centers it it means that in general you're it's like that precarity right it's the precarity of your life mm. and 
this is affecting I don't know do you have do you have do you, I don't know I don't actually have any numbers do you have any numbers of like how many people currently in this country are like seeking asylum it's fine if you don't really know to oh uh, no, no. <laughs> just out of interest. um but yeah I guess I just wanted to um there are many people seeking asylum but then there are also people who've who have like very different backgrounds and, and situations to do with how and why they're in the country yeah. and like why they want to stay mm-hmm. or like you know having relatives here or like just not having the right papers mm-hmm. and, I mean we've supported people through our campaign who are British citizens mm-hmm. but through different circumstances like they maybe committed a crime mm-hmm. and were um, incarcerated and then they were let out but then you know something happened to their documents and and then they're put into a detention center and, and told they're not allowed to be here anymore and right. so it's so actually, you know, the, like, just you know to we tend who, to focus yeah. on like asylum cases but actually like there is such a diversity mm-hmm. and range of of situations that people find themselves in like through no fault of mm-hmm. their own but the home office are incredible incredibly opportunistic mm-hmm. and you can see it with like what happened with Rin- windrush right you can see it with what's happening now with the zimbabwean community because there's a change in government now and because the current government now accepts people who are being deported mm. mugabe didn't and that's why okay but now there's like a new relationship forming between the British government and this new regime. And therefore, they're rounding people up wow. and people are in detention. And Zimbabweans who were tortured mm. um, from Mugabe um, and, and have fled mm. are now being are now at risk of being tortured. I feel like what's really fascinating from all of that to me is that I'm kind of wondering whether we, we really like stick to this idea of illegal and legal because it gives us a sense of safety, right? Because it's like, oh, you know, I'm legal. Like I'll always be legal. I, I have citizenship that can never change, and yet, as you're saying, that this is the, the whole categorization of illegal and legal kind of should remind us of the precarity of our belonging in the first place, which is that it is kind of arbitrary. And so, uh, what, when when you were just saying that about Windrush, I think that's a really good example, right? Because with the whole Windrush scandal, I remember something that I found really interesting that came out of it, which is is another binary, I guess, that overlaps with this, which was the idea that the reason that these people shouldn't be deported so someone like I remember David Lamy saying it quite a lot was that the reason you know people from the Windrush generation shouldn't be deported is because they were hard working you know they had come to this country a long time ago and they had you know provided you know services in the NHS and etc um, but then the underlying kind of rhetoric here is that these people shouldn't be deported because they are good immigrants they have somehow you know they, they, there's some element of being a deserving immigrant right and then the what I took from that was that Actually, the other side of his rhetoric is that there are some people who do deserve deportation. And actually, deportation is it is for the undeserving migrant. And so that's, I'm wondering here as well, like how much illegal and legal becomes about how deserving and undeserving you are as well. And so, because I remember the juxtaposition that I kind of thought about at that time was you have these like... Um, people particularly under the counter-terror legislation who are extradited and deported and they're definitely seen as undeserving right in the first place that their belonging was really in question because you know how how could we see them as as being british citizens when they have not you know worked in the nhs etc etc but then deportation in that rhetoric just becomes a punishment right and and which in of itself reveals the logics of it because you're like this is just supposed to be violent like there is nothing about this that's as the home office i guess would like like it to seem that it's necessary yeah, I 
I guess as as someone, these are kind of the arguments that we try as a campaign to confront first. And I think I think what needs to be challenged are these harder arguments around like illegality, legality, who's deserving and who's undeserving. And we kind of have to be clear about making demands that don't further entrench state violence and the power that state violence has over, mostly over working class migrant communities Mm -hmm. of color. And I think that, you know, when looking at the idea of like, I mean, I guess that's why this term like no one is illegal has come about and is such a like a big slogan for a lot of migrant justice communities because you can't you can't say you're against detention prisons and not be against like the prison industrial complex. You can't say you're against deportations and not say you're against the detention system. And you can't say you're against like borders without being against all that supports it. Right. Um, um, and, and if you do believe in like open borders, mm-hmm. then you understand that borders are like violent by design and like they're ideological infrastructures. And so that's kind of, I guess that's where we start off at. And, and I was going to say this at the beginning because mm. like I'm not an expert on immigration law and everything I'm saying comes from a place where comes from a place of listening um, to stories and to the voices of those affected and developing relationships with people who have been through this horrible fucked up system and figuring out ways in which we can act in solidarity Mm -hmm. Um, and it's I mean if you I guess there's no point acting in solidarity with just like one group of people. Right. Um, and I think and, that's kind of. And that leading on to kind of meaningless reforms. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, like this whole 28 day time limit, for example. Tell us about that. <laughs> um, so uh, I think the I think the labor part there there are parties. I think different different MPs from different parties, but I think like the Labour Party um, and maybe the Green Party are and several NGOs are campaigning for a 28 day time limit on detention. So currently, is there a time limit? There's current, yeah, no, there's currently no time limit on detention in the UK. So you can be indefinitely detained indefinitely for just detained. any amount of time. Yeah, and has that spanned years for some people? Oh yeah, yeah. And it's, these and these are the people we're talking about who just yeah. that it's not that they've done quote-unquote anything it's just the fact of who they are and how they exist yeah and i mean i've heard directly from people that who had been incarcerated for um and then put into detention saying that they preferred prison because well, at least you knew when you were going to get out yeah that's um, really interesting and we know also the state of these detention centers right like Yarlswood is oh, quite yeah. famously um talked about and protested outside of and mm. the conditions of people in these places is is inhumane and it's horrific these ngos um and parties campaigning on 28 time limit but not understanding that if you put a 28 day time limit then will that not only increase the amount of deportations that are occurring and like why you're just put a 28 actually, yeah. da- day time limit on imprisonment and like 
like you're not looking at the condition like you said the conditions of detention centers you're, they're not understanding like the mental health effects they're not understanding that 28 days isn't going is, is only like a, a small reform mm. to make it easier to and to make it more palatable as a system because i think the hostile environment is coming under a bit more you know there's a wider awareness i think and so saying something like oh no no we would only you know detain people 28 days it sounds good like sounds good in a way like i think that's oh it sounds less bad and and i can see that that's mainly just because of the scrutiny that the home office is being put under because here's the thing right when you hear all of this of what you just said and then you hear that you are the people who were put on trial and charged that's wild because it really seems, sounds like the Home Office are the ones who are committing the most violence here and the most harm. And if they want to make it about harm, right, then then kind of seems like they're the ones. And actually, just just to, to kind of expand on what you're saying about, um, you know, if we're going to be against one aspect of, of this kind of complex of violence, we have to be against all of it. I mean, that was my issue with David Lamy is that, you know, and with the kind of the rhetoric around the Windrush scandal was that, you know, let's not deport these people, um, but it's okay to deport um, others. And, and what that has done and what I've seen happen is this, you know, we're kind of okay. We, we kind of make it about like mor- the morality of someone um, should decide, or kind of we designate a moral state to the, to the way someone has lived and then decide whether that should allow them to have a right to safety, essentially. And so um, I just wanted to talk about, um, there's this, or just reference, there's this book um, by um, Nisha Kapoor called Deport, Deprive, Extradite. And in it, she kind of looks at the cases of particularly Muslim men who've been extradited from Britain to the US. So that means that they've been essentially deported there to be put on trial in in the US um, because they're facing terrorism related charges in the US, not here. But what's fascinating is that in those cases, they're put on pre-trial incarceration. um, And for some of them, it's been up to 17 years. And this is all seen as fine and good because it's, you know, about countering terrorism. And we know that terrorism is the moral baddie and the state is the moral goodie. Uh, And it's just all really wild because in the end of the day, these people are being deported, extradited, detained, all of that without any trial, without any conviction. So they've already, to my mind, what's happening here is that they're already being made illegal without having even been told what crime it is necessarily that they've committed. Um, And in a lot of cases, you know, secret evidence is used, secret courts are used. And I just find it fascinating then because you know that the way it's talked about in the media is just that, well, they're the bad guys. So this is perfectly justifiable. And I guess I'm trying to think about like how we we try and destabilize these categories of legal and illegal and leave that behind because it's really not about that at all. To me, well, to me, actually, and, and yeah, and actually I would love to hear your thoughts on this. To me, this is also inherently about race. This is a hugely racialized topic. Illegal and legal cannot be separated from race. Is that what you found in, in the research that you did and the kind of experiences of people you talked to? Oh, yeah. No, I I completely agree. And I think, I think like an example to, to kind of highlight that in terms of what you're just talking about, about people who've been... Um, charged with terrorist legislation and not given their G process in comparison to how us, the Sunset 15, were treated mm-hmm. under terrorist legislation. And, and, and whilst this is terrorist legislation, though the CPS and the Attorney General deny that it is, even oh. though it is. So that's kind of like one thing that's being argued in our appeal at the moment, because they're trying to say that, like, it's part of this longer piece of legislation. Right. So it's one section of it. But they're trying to say that, like, oh, this section doesn't um, 
come under terrorist law, right. even though it does, and it's part of the Security Act. It's so amazing. this is kind of this is this thing where um, we've been kind of charged with this kind of really like this this security legislation, and we're. We're not being treated at all like terrorists. You're doing community service. We're doing community service. <laughs> You're in We're people's charity shops. The <laughs> country, yeah. Um, and we got the front page of the Guardian right. saying we we've been spared jail, and and it's like for me, I'm kind of, in a way, the the media hype around mm. this helped us. Mm-hmm. I feel to. Ha- to um, have been given lighter sentences mm. and allowed us to platform a lot of the issues that we mm, want to definitely. talk about, which is amazing. But at the same time, the they've chosen this narrative because they can put, you know, mostly white women on the cover of The Guardian, you know, young white women, and be like, "Oh, they've been spared jail," and <laughs> and you know, we're we're getting called heroes, right? Um, and that like this should never happen to us, and right. and like I'm really grateful for that, but at the same time, it's like, there's ne- when have you ever seen a front page yeah. of someone who's seen it who's actually a criminal i'm a criminal right you're a criminal in charge under terrorist legislation on the front page like celebrating their freedom it's just and if you compare that to you know because i think the most caricatured was um abu katada right and they would always be like oh he's got this hook it was just very ableist and like racist and like all sorts of narratives and and the Home Office were desperate to support him for years and like went to so much effort and the media was so much part of that. And he, this guy hadn't even, wasn't even a quote unquote criminal at this stage, right? And so, the, yeah, you're right. The comparison is very it, <laughs> jarring. It's really, and I think there was, an, I saw it in a, I can't remember which paper, but it had like a photo of, and this was when we had received our uh, commu- like sentences and yeah. no one had gone to prison. And so on the like double page spread, you've got like a photo of us coming out of court. And then you've got like another article on like, um, on like the indefinite detention of people. And so it's kind of like, this is mad. That's like, really interesting. Ha- and, and, and on that day, at the same time, a flight to Jamaica left. Oh, wow. The first one um, since Windrush wow. deporting uh, 30 people to Jamaica. And so he, I don't know, That's it tough, was a bizarre yeah. day. And and even all like the, yeah, the media that's come out of it has, hasn't been... I think that whole day we talked about that flight and it wasn't really reported yeah, at all. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, Every time we talked about prison, we were trying to talk about the prison industrial complex. We were trying to talk about, like, look, there are people detained inside. Like, if you want to free us, the sounds at 15, then, like, go campaign outside a detention right. center. Go to a noise demo outside yeah. of prison. Like, And that's so interesting, isn't it? Because I think, you know, let's, like, you know, to be cliche about Guardian readers, a lot of these people don't have, rad- they're not going to be standing outside Yarl's Wood yeah. tomorrow. And yet, as you say, there was an appeal, I guess, to, which is interesting because I think initially there wasn't that appeal to, okay, so it was like, oh, well, and I think from a lot of, I, I just remember, like I say, hearing a lot of, well, well they did break the law and therefore they are bad. Um, and it's, yeah. It was a change of charge, I think. Mm. I don't think people, that, that was kind of one of the things we were um, 
discussing as a group around like what media message do we put forward and and it's always been around the issue of deportation flights and like particularly highlighting yeah and i've noticed that in everything but the amount of support we've gotten and and looking at people who come to the demos and stuff they've been people from like different labor groups mm, and like it's like a whole mix of people yeah but they're concerned about us <laughs> well, like as individuals fun, yeah. like that's kind of no i'm not saying all of them but no. like a lot of people who you wouldn't expect in a yeah. demo are coming out because yeah. they're like oh you remind me of your my daughter mm, or like you remind me of so my son and you know that's the kind of i think that kind of pulled on people's heartstrings to see like that's really interesting oh, these young women, my co-defendant was pregnant in the yeah, dock. Yeah. Like, there was... I think I remember... Long, yeah, I remember, it was a different um, story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember the protest outside the home office, I think, when you guys had just been charged. Yeah, yeah. We fa- we're found guilty. Right, 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 right. Uh, yeah, yeah, that was it. Um, when you were found guilty. And I remember Diane Abbott... Um, there was kind of this awkward moment where cause she was making some sort of speech and then somebody shouted, you know... Um, shut shut them all down like all the detention centers and then she was just really like well you know um maybe some maybe one maybe none you know like just very and it was hilarious because it was the juxtaposition of well if you're here and you're supporting these people this direct action was obviously about the bigger like complicated issues of you know who you decide has a right to humanity and who doesn't and then to say that oh i'm here just to support them but not to actually shut down these detention centers was i think really good evidence of of this weird contradiction of of how of, of this whole thing and actually it's making me think about what's like very presently in the Can news I just say yeah of course though, um around what she said because she said shut down yarlswood and shut down brook house and i would say my theories on that is one yarlswood is one of the only women's detention yeah. center it's had a lot of press that's where a lot of like noise demos happen outside there like every year brook house there was that panorama investigation oh, yeah. and so it was like very much in the media mm. and i think this this kind of that's interesting. The Yarlswood thing, I think, is re- I find really related to like who's deserving and who's undeserving Again. because there is a lot of support and uh, momentum, uh, m- mobilization around Yarlswood, mm-hmm. and that's because women yeah. are incarcerated there, and and they've been leading in terms of like um resistance inside and and that's been something that like other detention centers um other male detention centers have been kind of following but like there isn't as much solidarity and support Mm. for i mean harmonsworth and colenbroke are the biggest detention center in the uk and it's probably going to be even bigger if heathrow airport expands mm. they knock it down they're go- gonna build wow. like a mega detention center i think Oof. i mean people are kind of like mobilizing mm. if that happens and so i think yeah thinking i'm tr- i'm always always trying to like think about like if we're like who who's being left out yeah. in this picture great question and i think i think for the most part a lot of men mm-hmm. are are missed out in, mm-hmm. in terms of like their stories being told mm-hmm. 100%. um and them getting the kind of 
their their stories getting out in the media yeah because they're, they're less palatable less um, um, quote unquote empathizable yeah and it's the um, same with the foreign criminal right um subject of like and actually so this is something that i'm just thinking that's cu- very current right now is um the case of shamima begum right and this in this question of deserving and undeserving of legality and citizenship um and so um obviously she left the country when she was 15 um and she went to syria and even the rhetoric around you know the way she is described not as like a a, a young person or a child but as you know isis bride jihadi bride um which i just find fascinating because it's very much like to me jihadi bride is such an iconic phrase because it really tells you exactly how muslim women are thought of which is predisposed to violence inherently and predisposed to patriarchy inherently like it's all it's all in one anyway point being so she is now 19 um, she had two children in the time that she's been gone. Both of them died from malnutrition. Um, she's witnessed kind of war and circumstances of all sorts of trauma, I'm sure. And now um, has like said that she wants to come back home to the UK, which is like London. Um, and the it's just been so interesting, I think, seeing the debates around this because the initial, a lot of people's initial reaction was, well, you know, how dare, you know, wh- why should she come home? Um, and immediately it's the idea that like so your right to citizenship is already under question due to your um due to like so many things wrapped up in there right because it's not just ideology it's very much the rhetoric that is used is like you oppose british values and so to me this also brings in going back to your question about borders right or the the, we were talking about borders is that you know british values is just a phrase again that's very arbitrary that supposedly marks out like who what you should, what you're supposed to adhere to if you belong to this nation. Um, and actually, you know, one of my favorite things to always reference is um, there was this report done by Louise Casey in 2017, I think, and she's looking into social integration. And, and then she says, um, you know, in, in areas of the UK where there's higher concentrations of ethnic minorities, British values are less likely to develop. And she doesn't say in areas where there's higher concentrations of of white people, there's less likelihood of British values, which tells you that British values are therefore seen as in, innate to white people and to be learnt by ethnic minorities. And therefore, that they, if they will never be innate to ethnic minorities, ethnic minorities can never truly be deemed British. And that precarity of the belonging of racialized people is, is, is there in that rhetoric of British values. But then we see it so evidently in the way that Shamima now, so Sajid Javid says, yeah, actually, we're going to strip you of citizenship um, because on, on kind of on this basis of like, you're not remorseful enough about having left so therefore you become undeserving um you kind of because you become normalized to violence that's also not okay you're not like showing the signals we need to see to believe that you're palatable enough um but then you have this hilarious case where (laughs) so i think it's in 2014 that um there's a change to the the amend. There's like uh, i think theresa may made an amendment to the situation around depriving people of their citizenship and uh, what she did is that you can make a person now stateless if the Home Secretary believes they can obtain citizenship elsewhere. Um, and so Sajid Javid has stripped Shamima of citizenship, saying that, oh, because she has like Bangladeshi heritage, I'm sure Bangladesh can, you know, give her citizenship. And then the Bangladeshi government have come out and said, no, absolutely not. She's not a dual citizen. And like, we're not going to give her citizenship, which I think is hilarious because it shows how much of it is just a posturing by by the Home Office to say, we, you know, we would never, um, you know, condone the kind of violence of this, this uh, Muslim girl. On the other hand, we will be explicitly violent with everything we do from detention centers to deportation to 
stripping and removing citizenship. And the thing that frustrates me the most is that the people, you know, who love law and order, like this very liberal rhetoric of like human rights, democracy of Britain, absolutely do not care when it comes to stripping somebody of their human rights and what gives them access to legal rights when it comes to this like racialized um, woman who... I, I just I just think it's such a fascinating case of the arbitrariness of legal and illegal. And yeah. I don't know, it's, it's And the illusion strange. of security. Right, because here's the other thing is that Sajid Javid himself surely could also be attacked through the same like measure which is oh I'm sure you could find some, because you have a bit of brown in you I'm sure there's some other oh, wait, what you did know, that MPC a funny funny tinge, tinge. yeah oh <laughs> like but I'm sure that that would mean that you know there's another country where you could find citizenship yeah. and therefore yeah. you and so and it is it's like one of the most explicit examples of how the border is racist because it's like if you have any if you look you know like any type of non-white then there's another state you can belong to. We don't want you. And, and it reminds all of us, I think, who are here that are racialized that your belonging was always precarious. Yeah. There's yeah. no, you have no security. And actually, I think um, between 2002 and 2016, 70 people have been deprived of their citizenship um, and none of, almost none have managed to appeal that decision successfully. Um, and so some of these are like stateless in other uh, countries. And, and yeah, so they're, I mean, quote unquote, illegal. They've got no right to remain, but they... They're not, as you say, they're not asylum seekers. Like they were people who were naturalized British citizens. Yeah, yeah I think. I mean, I I also would argue that it's it's not just racialized, but it's about, um, it it's, it's economic as well, mm. and I think it there's it has a lot to do with economic privilege on like how you're able to attain citizenship, and, um, I guess. I I believe that because I think of my own situation and I have like a really funny weird kind of background is that I I was born in Singapore but I was born with British citizenship and I was and that was because my parents had economic privilege to live and this so growing up the only word I was familiar with in in terms of people who lived in another country that lived in another country that wasn't a country they're part of was expatriate mm. and so mm. i was like oh yeah expatriate like that's a good term that's like so it's really good to be part of this cosmopolitan oh. international community and and that was solely due to economic privilege and i think you have that in many different countries you have that in the uk mm. where people are able to like buy their citizenship mm. um and so I feel like this is this is a thing that like affects affects people of color, but like working class people mm-hmm. of color, um, and that and I think that's so obvious when you you think about like the policing of black and brown communities and where that occurs, mm-hmm. um, and who's being targeted, mm-hmm. and and where these reporting centers are. So it, it's really thinking about looking at the geographic spaces of um the border system yeah 100 percent. no no no. i think that's a yeah really integral point and i think also like you know the idea of like which people are disposable and which bodies are disposable is yeah. and then when you make that when you talk about economics it's also about you know from a kind of also a point of view of like which communities are not 
um, that they are become un, like subhuman, disposable, because also they're like not quote unquote producing resources relevant for the nation as well as being dehumanized. So it's like they truly are disposable. There's no need like you you're nothing but like irrelevant and dehumanized, um, which is. Yeah, truly, truly tragic. And I remember the, um, I think Citizens UK were doing a protest outside the Home Office recently about um, children of, I think children of refugees or like, it, it, no, it's children of asylum seekers. So as you were saying, because these people haven't been granted um, their right to remain yet, but their children have grown up and like gone to school here um, for, there's some sort of like, you know, to apply for naturalization for these kids, it costs, I think, £1,300 just to apply. That's just the application. And if you got anything wrong in the application or whatever, you would obviously have to reapply. Um, But Citizens UK did like a big uh, investigation into it. And they found that, you know, the actual cost, if you wanted to think about like that, would be about £300. Um, But again, so who can access like citizenship and who can't? Um, and then on the other hand, you can be for no money, you know, stripped of it. Um, so, well, yeah, I mean, I think that's also um, really interesting because it kind of relates to people who, like if you're if you've applied for asylum or if you're like applying for your uh, leave to remain um, and you've got like you're probably waiting for years and during this time you can't work mm, yeah exactly. and then one of the so one of the practices that's like coming that's really developing right now are voluntary returns mm. and these are this is being run by NGOs the home office is paying NGOs oh. to enact voluntary returns which is kind of like asking people at, like saying like you know what like your situation's pretty shit here. You can't work. You know, wouldn't it be better if you just went back and we can help you? Like, we can sort out the shipping. We'll pay for that. We'll, like, you know, they'll, they'll like, give kind of monetary support for people to return. So it's, like... Doing the job of this, deportation for yeah, us. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is part of the whole complicit environment that they're... Um, like putting forward now and and now there's also this kind of alternatives to detention um alternatives to yeah alternatives to the detention scheme where they're partnering up with even more um ngos and this is kind of like something that isn't apparent and it's something you yeah. kind of have like to dig deep yeah. to find out um but these alternatives to detention not only include these voluntary returns they're they they they're they're fucking insidious yeah, um but this yeah this is really tied into like if you're like you know you right. could be like destitute in the right. UK waiting for your asylum claim right. to go in and then you think and then along comes like a like cheery person from an NGO saying like I'll help you out like mm. let me let me yeah, take care of some things for yeah. you. That actually just I just wanted to read this quote from um, Harsha Walia's book um, Border Imperialism, and it's uh, it says that within this whole like d- 
discussion, what remains unquestioned are the capitalist and colonial logics that make immigration an issue in the first place. To begin with, for immigration to be a problem, people must live in a propertied relationship to land. That is, land is a commodity that can be owned and controlled by one group of people. And I think that, like, you know, beyond the illegal, legal kind of binary, going back to what you were saying about, you know, borders themselves are an ideological um, structure and like nations themselves are. And I think it's sometimes weird when you have this argument with people and they're like, yeah, but you know, it's, you know, what, how can you imagine any other system where we don't just deport people and like, wow, but like nation states haven't even been around that long, like in the scope of history and this idea that like, you know, you who can and can't cross this border and that this is owned by me and immigrant itself as a term, you know, suggests that there's a place for you and there's a place for me and these are separate places. Um, and yeah, so I just think this whole, you know, once we do away with this binary, there's a whole other set of questions we can start talking about, which would be so much more exciting on a national scale if we if we were doing that rather than, you know, should or shouldn't we deport yeah. this person? Yeah, no, definitely. And I think like now, like now is the time for groups. I mean, especially the like way that my, you know, people... I say my friends, like, yeah, my friends who I campaign with (laughs) think about or are trying to, like, imagine alternatives to the histories we've inherited and think about, like, what does an abolitionist future look like? And I think, you know, our campaign's really inspired by Critical Resistance and Ruth Wilson Gilmore, who... um, doesn't you know she she doesn't say like abolition is about like burning things to the ground and and scorching the earth Mm -hmm. but it's about building up from that and like building alternatives um and being able to imagine those alternatives as well and i think a lot of people get scared at the sound of abolition because it does sound like you're destroying everything and what but what you're doing in its place and and then you get these you know defensive arguments of without detention centers well what would we do and it's like i think actually we need the space to say it's also just about imagining what else is possible and and not being restricted by the history that as you say that we've inherited yeah and acknowledging that the justice system is failing and it's not it's not (laughs) and we need to we need to have a system that protects the most vulnerable and it doesn't it persecutes them 100% and so what kind of things can people do to resist um, particularly in terms of like border violence is there anything you would like point people towards um, campaigns or resources yeah I I think definitely join a campaign try join a campaign volunteer at a migrant center um volunteer as a visitor to detention centers there's lots of groups out there you know so as detainees support there's end deportations which i'm part of lesbian and gay support the migrants um yeah there's i think there's there's a lot to do and I you know I haven't quite got my head around it since mm-hmm. um taking part in that action two years mm-hmm. ago it feels like I've actually only done one thing which is do that <laughs> um but it's like carried over but not only and saying that like you don't have to be on the front right. lines stopping a deportation flight mm-hmm. 
at all. And I think there's so many other roles mm-hmm. that are needed. Um, and I think also in the work that people are already yeah. doing, thinking about how it connects oh, yeah. with the border already, because it's like likelihood is yes. that like the border is really relevant to someone. If you're a university lecturer, likelihood is to get paid, you have to show your passport. If you go, I mean, I had to go, I was doing something in the university the other day and I, they were like, okay, we need to see your passport to, you know, make sure we can pay you. And it's like, the border is everywhere around us yeah. in all our workplaces. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's, oh, I wanted to say that, like that kind of relates a lot to this abolition geography okay. that Ruth Wilson Gilmore talks about when she was she was trying to campaign around a prison that was being built somewhere in California and they're trying to find ways in which they could relate their issue with other groups that were kind of surrounding the prison. Mm-hmm. So like there were different environmental groups that were looking at like land restoration and then looking at like the environmental impact of the prison and so they're linking up with like groups that actually had nothing to do with prison abolition but they're making the case for Mm -hmm. developing that relationship Mm -hmm. and saying like look this is why Mm -hmm. we all need to oppose this and speaking of solidarity like you were earlier like that's I guess the only way to transform, because I think the reason people get overwhelmed is when you're talking about one thing, like borders or prisons, you end up having to talk about a whole host of other things, yeah. like education, like the state, like the home office. And and so maybe the answer isn't that we all have to be doing direct actions, as you say, but instead in what you're already doing, think about how to create alliances and yeah. co- like collaboration with other people and other groups and I know for me when I met you and you were talking about end deportations and and the action you had done I was thinking about a lot of the work I had been doing around Islamophobia and counter-terrorism and how these things were inextricably linked and that you know that it's impossible to oppose counter-terrorism legislation without also opposing the border and the border regime and, and vice versa and so I think actually there's a lot of scope to to maybe reflect on what people are doing in their own work environments and lives and and as you say even like look around you where you live like what's actually going on in your local area like I'm, I'm sure people would be surprised yeah no definitely thank you so much Helen for um, helping us break down this binary of illegal and legal migrants um, I think it's clear that thinking in terms of illegal and legal is is pretty unhelpful um, it's very arbitrary as we discovered and it really distracts I would say and quite deliberately prevents us from trans- from transforming society because we're not thinking in more useful terms around kind of um, safety and humanity and, and harm um, and so we end up blaming the people like yourselves um, for, for being the ones who are putting people in harm um, than perhaps the, the violence of the state and that is something I think actually you know, something that I take from today is that um, for a really transformative uh, future to be possible, we have to center the most marginalized. And that is kind of, as you're saying, economically, racially um, marginalized people who are at the borders from generally third world, uh, quote unquote, global south um, experiences and positionalities. So thank you for joining me. And if there's anything that you want to add, feel free. And if not, <laughs> thank you for coming. Thank you. Um, I don't have anything to add. That's completely fine. Thank you for listening to this episode of Breaking Binaries. I hope you, like me, can take something from my guest this week. Look out for episodes fortnightly and if you enjoyed, please share with a friend or loved ones or even a nemesis. I want to thank Hussain Kasvani for making this possible and reaching out to me in the first place, as well as the whole gang of producers, Milo and Nate. The music you've been hearing was made by an old high school connection that came through, so shout out to Violence Jack and give him a follow at, at getviolencejack online. 
Thanks to all my guests for chatting with me every week and helping us think a little more critically and I hope humbly about our world. I do believe that the way we transform the world is transforming the way people think about it. So thank you for listening. I've been your host, Sahima Manzokan. Bye.